Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. My guest this week is Brooke Schoenfeld, Schoenfield sorry, uh, from IO Active. So, uh, Brooke, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do at IO Active. Sure. Um, I'm IO Active's master security architect, which is kind of a fancy way of saying I'm the most senior technical person for security architecture um, in our, our consultative practices. Um, background is I'm the author of Securing Systems, um, which is a book about threat modeling, which is the key technique we use in secure design, actually, and maybe other places in, in security. We can talk about that in a moment, um, why that's so important, threat modeling. And uh, I've been doing software security and bounced back and forth between IT and security in leadership roles for oh almost 20 years now. Um, started out in security because nobody else was doing it and I used to write our, I was a chief designer for a little software house and, and nobody, I used to write their TCP IP stack. So they said, you know about networks, can you do this security stuff too? And that might say that was my descent into, into the, <laughs> into the, the, the morass we call digital security or cybersecurity. Um, and it's become a, a passion and, and, um, and, uh, and and focus of my life actually um, I'm pretty passionate about about this stuff uh, so I, I've written a couple of books I contributed to core software security which is about the secure development lifecycle um, written a couple of short items co-authored with for IEEE and and uh, uh, Safeco their threat modeling guide um, which is those those pieces of work are so fantastic because you meet all these incredible people um, and and uh, we could maybe talk a little bit about the IEEE guide because there's a little funny story about that. Um, but uh, uh, then, uh, you know, I've, I've had four leadership positions where I've developed a software security program. And um, so far, they've all uh, proven to help reduce issues and make better software. So um, I'm on a roll. Uh, you know, the, the failure is probably right in front of me, and that isn't to say I haven't made a lot of mistakes um, along the way. Um, and I have made lots. And so that's kind of about my background, lots of leadership roles, technical leadership roles. Um, my last gig, I had 120-some security practitioners who I provided technical leadership for, so fairly large programs. Um, and, uh, you know, all things secure development lifecycle with a specialty in secure design or security architecture, depending upon how you want to call it. So I, I think that's probably enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty, pretty thorough background. And, uh, you know, I, th I think, uh, um, yeah, it, it, your, your, your track record, uh, I think, uh, should, should speak for itself. Um, so let's, uh, you know, you, you said, you know, you're the author of, um, secure design or I mean, securing systems, um, it, it, which you said focused on threat modeling. So let's, I mean, the, the, the inner circle podcast audience leans technical, but just for, uh, for, for some of the audience who might not know, um, let's talk a little bit about what is threat modeling? What is secure design? Sure. So let, let me even step back a step further. Um, as an industry, and I just gave a keynote for somebody's internal security conference about this, um, so it's a little hot on my, on my you know, uh, mental landscape. Um, as a security industry, as an industry, we've really focused on vulnerabilities, conditions that can be exploited. And basically, in general, these are bugs. Um, and I think that's the, the broader category, which by that I mean they are unintended effects from software we write. 
And in this case, in the vul- case of a vulnerability, it's um, unintended and and usable by an attacker, leverageable. So, you know, there are lots of things in our industry focused on vulnerability. In fact, a couple of the conferences, a couple of the three biggest conferences, two of the three, are totally focused almost exclusively on vulnerability announcements and and how you find them and, and what you do with them once you found them. And so we've got kind of, if you will, a culture of vulnerability, which is not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, we need to address those. But what's been missing is the fact that not everything that's missing in software when we build it is an implementation error. Um, and Gary McGraw likes to cite some study, which I have never seen, um, that uh, uh, that says that 50% of issues that we find are design issues. I don't know. It doesn't really matter because from an attacker point of view, if I've got the one thing that allows me in and gets me started, I don't care really whether it's a design issue or a an implementation error, it's irrelevant to me as the attacker. What counts is what can I do with it and can it, you know, allow me to, can I leverage it to proceed towards my goals, whatever those may be. Um, and so you have a situation where we have focused on one type of problem to not quite to the exclusion, but um in the shadow is our secure design problem. So I've kind of taken it upon myself to point that out, that the emperor might only be wearing pants instead of no clothes at all, um, and that we need to focus on the secure design problem. Hence uh, the book I wrote with 13 other people, um, avoiding the uh, for IEEE, avoiding the top 10 uh, secure design flaws, for instance, um, piece of work that, that we did together. Um, and 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 such like and and threat modeling is the technique we use to identify what we need to do in order to have a better design now there are principles in secure design things like least privilege and and don't give trust earn trust um don't go around your authentication don't leave any holes around your authentication things like that are all principles that we design to um, but when we look at a particular system or a particular organization, we think through the attacks that system will need to resist. And this is actually a little bit of a formal definition, if you will. And the defenses that will bring that system, and I mean system very inclusively um, because there isn't a better term, that will bring that system to a desired defensive state. So that's actually a formal definition of threat modeling, um, that we are identifying the attacks a system must resist so that we can um, build the defenses that will bring that system to a desired and provable, hopefully, through testing, defensive state the defensive state we need, because there's no perfect defensive state. We all know that. There's no perfect security. But we're we're in a situation where we, we need to design stuff in. And just one other thing I'll say before I, I, I let you go to the next question, and this is important. Um, NIST 814 in 1996, yes, that early, more than 20 years ago, um, specifies that uh, systems ought to get their security requirements early in the development life cycle. We're talking 22 years ago, and yet organizations are still struggling with this. We don't have, you know, you don't see at every security conference and at every training, you know, secure design right along with, say, um, uh, uh, anal- you know, uh, identifying indicators of compromise, IOC, or threat hunting, or threat intelligence. All of these are things you can study. But have you seen secure design um, anytime soon? Uh, I mean, we did try this, and I'll go into that later if you want to hear about it, but or if your l- listeners want to hear about it. There, there was an effort around this, um, but uh, have been a couple. But nevertheless... You know, look at all the courses or other things you see out there. They're pretty much focused on after the compromise begins or identifying vulnerabilities or identifying attacks before they go um, rather than building it right from the start. So, I would agree with that. You know, that's a, that's a little hole in our practice. And, and it's understandable because it's hard. 
And it's a lot of its art, whereas we can use a lot more science when we look at, at vulnerability hunting. This is hard engineering. But secure design is a little trickier because it's context dependent. And we get into art as opposed to um, hard engineering. Obviously, when you actually specify a particular design, it gets into hard engineering and you need to be a decent engineer, have you know decent computer science to do it. But uh, the point is there's art there too. And um, so that makes it trickier. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I was going to say that... Uh... Yeah, I, I agree with you that you know for for the for the most part when you go to you know the the, the main conferences uh, you know uh, there there is much more of a focus on uh, you know vulnerability discovery threat intelligence those types of things, um, but but your uh, the initial part of your your description of secure design and threat modeling reminded me <laughs> that a number of years ago uh, I. Uh, had a, a, a you know pretty in-depth conversation with um, Michael Howard at Microsoft about threat modeling, and that I mean, and so so I mean, and, and and not to suggest that you were saying that it's a it's a it's a new concept per se. I'm just saying like oh, it's it, not. It, it not has been around, and I know that I know that Michael Howard has been a champion of, of threat modeling, you know, f for a decade. Um, uh, you know, so it, it is it is out there. Um, let me let me let me ask this then about threat modeling. So, well, one of the things that I see, or, or from my perspective, and, and granted, I am not I'm I'm neither a developer nor a security researcher, um, so I'm kind of judging from the sidelines here. Um, but you know, detecting a vulnerability is you know to to me seems like a an easier thing. It's less esoteric. You can see it and you can go, yes, that is a vulnerability. Whereas secure design uh, and threat modeling, you've got some, some, some best practices. You've got some things that you ought to do. Um, but as you pointed out, there is no 100% secure. There is no perfect. So it's like, you know, how do you go about defining success from a secure design perspective? If, if you know, if you know upfront that it's not going to be invulnerable. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that's where the feedback loop that, that some forward-looking organizations have already started working on this. Um, and, and, and I want to mention a, another dear friend of mine, Owen Carroll, who's a security researcher, senior security researcher at uh, McAfee. Um, he's the one who actually really solidified this in my thinking, because I learned from everybody, by the way. Um, and I'll, I'll probably mention more names as we go along because I, um, you know, I, I, these people are fantastic. And it, without them, I, I stand on their shoulders just as they stand on mine. Um, you know, it's a community. But um, Owen uh, and I were talking about the, the relationship between testing and threat modeling. And that's where the provable part comes in and the improvement part. So, so in threat modeling, we're imagining the attacks and and there's a there's an there's there's art and some science to that and and let's pick that up in a moment um the, that that piece but the 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 um the provability of your threat model the refinement of it rather than being a point in time comes through the testing of it so that's where you know vulnerability analyzers like dynamic analyzing or fuzzing um, or or even through static analysis if you're working with uh, languages that that where you have to do a lot of coding in order to implement your um, protections as well um, and that depends uh, that's again it's context dependent um, in those situations, you use various tools, and those tools feed back into the threat model in order to prove it. Point-in-time threat models, I've come to believe, are really a bad idea. They have to be living and breathing, which doesn't mean you're constantly doing a four-month activity. In fact, you can make this very agile threat modeling by, by doing just as much as you can at each, as, as, as a piece of software develops and grows you're 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 refining the threat model um, repeatedly 
probably not continuously because there are some definite triggers that say now take a look again um and and other times you're just implementing what what you know so far but you have this feedback natural feedback loop that says hey you thought you'd gotten your um input uh, escaped in this web interface, and yet I was able to do a cross-site scripting. So your implement either your implementation is incorrect, or your threat model is incorrect. Better review, and so there's this natural, you know, it should be. Not, not all organizations have this, but but uh, it, there should be this very natural um, discussion and dialogue between. The, the testing part of what we do for security and the imagining part, which is the, the security part. So when I said imagining, I don't mean making up attacks. That's one place where, where threat modelers get really lost is they think, well, you know, do I have to imagine new kinds of attacks, new technologies? No, 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 no. I mean, yeah, there may be some use to that, but let's leave that to the security researchers. They're the ones we depend on to tell us what the new attacks we haven't thought of before um, are going to look like. And and that's their purpose um, in, in, in my universe, in the way I look at it. And, and the, what they bring to the table is this is an attack you know, this is a new vector of attack nobody's thought of before or we're refining. So so it's, you know, we can refine the work. Again, that helps refine our design. Um, so that's that's what researchers are for in my world. And I even blogged about this, had a little exchange with Adam Shostak about this um, uh, around, you know, how do we improve our designs? People can go look at my blog if they want um, or Adam's and it'll point to mine and so like. Uh, but... Uh, Nevertheless, um, when we imagine attacks, what I'm really saying, and, and it's actually dead simple, is you take, you imagine that attacks that have been successful in technologies that are simple, similar and architectures that are similar, and you say, if those issues, if those attacks are levied against my software, how will my software defend against them? So you don't need a vulnerability today, and that's the big difference of what, what we're talking about from threat modeling to um, vulnerability hunting, is I don't need a vulnerability today. What I'm saying is, if I'm looking at, a, at a something written in C++, I know their memory issues are legion in C++ programs or C programs. And, and some other languages too, but let's just focus on those since they're, you know, a lot of system stuff is written in that. Um, and so, you know, if, I, if I'm dealing with C and C++, immediately I know memory issues. I don't, I'm not saying there's a memory issue in your code, talking to a coder, today. I'm not accusing you of that. I'm saying they are so prevalent that even if you do your very best, probably at some point in the future, a memory issue is going to come up that can be um, leveraged by an attacker, in other words, a vulnerability. And so there is coding measures we need to take today. That's one of our defenses. We'll be making sure that when we copy into memory, we're not over-copying and our buffer size is the right size and that we, we, we never try to copy into something that's been released and so on and so forth. And you can... Readers can go look at any C++ uh, or C uh, secure, you know, programming standard and you'll see all this stuff is written in there, right? right. Um, there's nothing new there. In fact, I wrote, I wrote Cisco InfoSec's first coding standards for C and C++ in 2001, early 2001, and a lot of that stuff hasn't changed at all, um, right. which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, so... Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying podcast. is that, yeah, but you know, the point is that, that, um, when you're working with a particular technology, you're applying stuff that happened before that was successful and, and with the understanding that bugs come up, issues come up in software. So for instance, um, let's take a different example. Um, that's not a coding one. Um, if we put, uh, 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 you know, if you put something on the internet, uh, uh, let's say a Linux box, and you don't do anything to its default, 
you know, pretty soon it's going to be compromised. And that pretty soon is a, is a number depending upon where the IP4 sweeps are of the attackers. And it could be seconds, could be minutes, could be hours, but it's not going to be days, I can assure you. So that's one thing we know for certain in information security, 100% certain. So we know that one of the design requirements will be to harden and remove, to harden that box and remove any services we don't know, uh, that we don't use, and, um, and any that are, that, are, that are vulnerable, get rid of all that stuff, and, and, and prepare ourselves for the constant probing that, that, that boxes sitting on the, on the Internet are going to receive. We know that. So that would be a security requirement. That's, you know, I'm, this, is, this is web, you know, basics 101. Mm-hmm. You harden. Um, and so, you know, knowing that, that would be a security requirement for a brand new team that had never thought about this. You know, you, you tell them you got to harden that box. You can't just stick it on the Internet. It'll be compromised in seconds, potentially. And so, you know, that would be a security requirement. That's a design thing. You have to harden this box. And um, you have to follow something like the Center for Internet Security hardening guides or, or you know, pick your own, pick your favorite <clears throat> hardening guide. doesn't matter. Those are very good, in my opinion, by the way. Um, I've used them for years. So that would be a secure design requirement. We already know that by the context and what's happening. I don't need to know that a particular attack or a particular vulnerability, I already know that the thing will be – that that thousands of attacks will be tried against that box. I don't even need to know any details about it. I just know it will be probed. And so you have to prepare for that. Does that make sense? So I don't have to make up a new attack. Absolutely. Uh, that, that does make sense. Um, let, let, let me go back to something you said kind of at the beginning uh, of, of that explanation um, when you were talking sort of about uh, uh, Feedback, uh, kind of the feedback loop, and the and you mentioned I think uh, the you know NIST standard from like 1996 that specified that you should get the security requirements early in the development cycle. Um, yep. So before I was you know on the tech journalism tech marketing side of the fence, <clears throat> I did uh, you know I, I was a security architect and a security analyst, and uh, one of my one of my roles when I was at EDS was to perform a uh, security analysis of software that had, was developed, you know, before we released the software, and the, these types of conversations, like what you just pointed out, always uh, they're they're always funny to me because that's totally not what we did. I mean, you know, even though we as the security people would would tell the developing team, "Hey, you need to involve us earlier in this process because." You know, I mean, it's it's not unique to me or unique to EDS. I mean, obviously, what would happen is the developers would come up with their requirements. They would develop their program. They would give it to us basically after the fact um, for the security analysis, at which point, of course, there were security issues because they never asked us about it when they should have. But then that put us in the bad position of having to tell them to scrap it and start over or yep. rubber stamping it like there, there, there weren't really any other options at that point. Um, yep, that's right. And you know, um, and, so- and and as you said, that is completely every nearly every organization I have talked to suffers from that problem. So finish your thought, but I just wanted to note, you know, that that problem is is om- nearly omnipresent. Yeah. Go on. Well, so 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 definitely. I mean, security should be. I mean, and I think you know, security. Professionals, uh, you know, f- from almost any uh, uh, area of security, will say that um, it would be better if we were involved earlier, more often. You know, had a seat at the table, so that you, so that people aren't coming to to security after the fact, and then we look like the bad guys because we're telling them that their stuff is broken. Um, yep. b- so I wanted to then, you know, kind of take that to where we are. Now, because we're not when you know, so when I was at EDS, I mean, we were working with a you know a waterfall development method um, that was like pre-agile, and now we've gone from agile to DevOps, and everything is continuous, and there's you know there is no beginning and there is no end; it's just constant development. And so, does that you know it, it almost sounded to me earlier like 
the description you had of threat modeling was sort of like that sort of continuous feedback loop before it was cool. Um, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on how threat modeling fits into kind of a, a DevOps lifecycle of development. Yes. Um, so there's actually three, three things there. If I heard you correctly, I hope I did. Um, and, and one of them is, you know, the early engagement, how do we, or, or the, the engagement at the right points. And everybody suffers from that, whether they're doing agile or waterfall or some other thing. Um, everybody suffers from, not everybody, but lots of practitioners, lots of programs suffer from that. And there are a couple of, you know, cures, um, and I, but I'd like to touch on that. So let's not lose that thread because that's, a, that's an important thread and maybe of use to everybody, uh, you know, who listens to this podcast is, is some of the ways you can, you can get around that problem. Um, two, uh, yeah, I lost the, the middle one. Sorry. Um, but let's talk about DevOps and continuous because, because I was thinking in that way. And one of the cool things about my own career, and you know, I've just been really privileged um, to, to be around, is w when I first started looking at Agile as a security pr practitioner and, 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 and somebody who had been a chief designer and developer for years, I was pretty frightened by it, to be honest. Um, and, you know, we tried to create strong guardrails. So we would do a point in time analysis and then we called it something different. doesn't matter. Um, same thing. Um, but uh, it, we would do a point in time analysis, come up with the security requirements, and then you get to the, the final che security check and a lot of it wasn't built. And it is kind of that s same problem. Or you get this late engagement where, you know, it's too late to do anything for them, um, really, uh, except, you know, call the baby ugly, which developers despise. Um, anybody, everyone despises having their hard work called, you know, called into question. Um, so we need to avoid that. And it is possible, by the way. Um, but, um, you know, how do we do this? Well, threat modeling can start but one of the big misconceptions is that security have some magic wand that we can wave at the end of a project through our magic testing and what the magic testing is going to show is all the stuff that wasn't done correctly and all the ways that the attackers can get in um, which should have been thought of as we said before much earlier um, and so you're, you're really late to the game, and maybe people can't do anything, and maybe they can, and, and who knows? Then, then it gets into, you know, escalations and management decisions and, and risk assessments and such like. Um, but one, uh, so that's one big misconception. Another big mis misconception is that testing is enough. Um, I've seen that a lot. Um, you'll say, well, do you do any, any risk assessment or architectural work? And they'll say, well, pen test. Well, that's great, but as you just said, that's too late. Um, that's after the thing's already built. Um, and so that's, that's a problem. And another misconception is that we have to have the entire structure decided before we can threat model it. I have seen that many, many times. You, you, know, you start to get engaged and you say, well, let's, let's threat model this. And the team, you know, lead architect says, well, we don't have the architecture set yet. And in Agile, you're not going to because you only have enough skeleton structure to get started. You don't actually do the architecture. At, you, use, you do the architecture as you learn about the structures that you'll need as the Agile process unfolds. So obviously, it's never going to be done until you're just about ready to do the last implementation. And by then, the threat model is too late. It's it's still too late at that point. So really what we're talking about is being a security person who thinks differently about the design, who thinks about the design from the point of attacks and defenses. That's our specialty, security architects, um, during the design process. And in Agile, that means repeated interaction because the structure is going to unfold. Um, so there, there there's a caveat to that. Um, and, and this is actually comes from something I learned from, from threat modeling 
uh, a certain product. I won't, I won't name it um, uh, when I was at Intel. But they had been writing to the same structure, the same architecture for years. They were not changing their structure or their architecture. They had no plans for a, a version 2 or a version next gen. They were really happy with their architecture. It was doing what they had intended to do. So in fact, the threat model was, again, way too late. Um, it should have been done when they were thinking through the architecture, however that process unfolded, whether it was agile or something else. Um, so again, it's being part of in, in these agile or continuous um, developments. It's being part of, but if you're writing to the same architecture, the same structure, the same security implementations, because those are the three triggers, um, if you're writing to those things and you've already threat modeled, you're actually done. You actually don't need to threat model more. You should have the security requirements that people will write to. And so, you know, the continuous delivery can, can focus on implementation errors um, and improvement in that way. And, you, you know, if, you, if your architecture, if your structure and your security services are steady state, if they're stable, you don't need to redo your threat model. There's no reason. There, you know, as long as you have thought through your attacks and defenses you know, okay. through and, and that's what you built, you're good. Um, I will say that in DevOps, one of the things I, that gets missed is that the DevOps needs to be threat modeled too. DevOps is usually owned by the development team completely and often they have the run of the, of the thing. You know, everybody's got root privileges on everything, um, especially in small companies. And that kind of makes sense in small companies the moment you get to, you know, 100 people or 70, 70 engineers. You got too many for everybody to have um, uh, root rights on, on everything. But when you have five, it makes sense. It's perfectly reasonable because you, you you know you're all watching what you're doing anyway. So the problem here is DevOps needs to be architected, not organic. If it's organic, whatever security issues are floating around under there haven't been studied. So one of the hard problems in the current situation is that there are constantly new tools and new ways of doing it, and we want to enable that innovation against having a planned DevOps chain where we have principle of least privilege, where we have some controlled access. And those two things are in tension. They're in a terrible tension because you want, I want my developers to experiment with every new tool in the world because what if something comes along that's the best thing since uh, Kubernetes? Um, you know, you, you, you want to you get that into production as soon as possible for its, its, its innovative edge, for its, its, its possibilities. On the other hand, you can't just go messing with the build chain and the run chain of production willy-nilly because you're liable to open um, uh, a security issue uh, unknowingly, unwittingly, just trying to get your job done. So I'm really in favor, and I've only known a couple of companies that have done this, so it's, it's really quite new. But I'm really in favor of giving every developer a place to play with new tools. A complete, say, let's say, a complete duplicate of the build and run system, in which every developer can play around and mess around, and then you have planned and and architected change to the actual production build and run system, the DevOps. You have you can plan that and say, oh, that would be a great tool. Let's shift this thing from puppet to chef or whatever, you know, whatever people are doing. And, and uh, because if you take two or three or four tools and put them under a rock overnight, there's like 40 in the morning. They're like rabbits. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope people laugh at that. Uh, most people do. And, and that's, you know, kind of a problem um, from a planning perspective, from an architect. So, so the point is that every part of the work has to be secure, securely designed, securely architected, not just the software itself. All of it makes a difference. On the other hand, I want, I want the developers to play with everything, to have playtime, to, to be able to look for the latest, coolest thing that'll improve everything at the same time. And we want to do those with a little um, isolation. 
um, I think, is the best way to handle that. At least I've seen a couple of successful programs that did that fairly well. And, and the developers were really happy and understood. The other thing is that um, I don't think security does this very well. I mean, some do. We don't tell our developers the awesome responsibility they have when they go play with, with production. The awesome responsibility. So let's say you were a car company and you had 15 million drivers of your luxury automobiles. I won't name anybody. It's not, it's not entirely hypothetical, but um, let's say, right? And you had 15 million cars out there on the road. If you let somebody play, you know, do we tell the developer, if you stick that in and it has a security problem, you could maybe kill a fair number of these people? Do we actually say that? Because most of the people I work with are are well responsible enough and motivated enough to go, oh, yeah, right. Okay, where can I play? Where is it safe? Nobody wants to kill people on the road, not the people I've worked with. Right. Not, not even vaguely, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we need to convey to our developers the reason why these things, it's not about stopping people from getting things done. It's about the awesome responsibility we all hold to our um, to our users, to our stakeholders, to the company that we work for. You know, um, think of a web property, big web property. If uh, it allowed some, you know, one set of attackers to steal from thousands of accounts, um, you know, banking or credit card details, that's bad. So we owe a responsibility to those people to 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 our users to to do the best for them and and we don't convey that to developers very well I do but right. you know and and I kind of learned that a long time ago um, at when I was at Cisco leading their web infrastructure and application security team that that if I just told people r reminded them what the responsibility is and why I'm saying the things that I'm saying every most people get it unless they're you know not playing with a with a high integrity deck um, most people, the vast majority are going to go, right, right. Let's think this through. Right. Yeah. I, I forgot. And I think a lot of people, I mean, to, to, to go back to the, the, you know, your, your point of having a, a, a kind of a separate place that you can play with those tools. Um, I think a lot of people can, can appreciate that. I know that, um, you know, so to go, so to go like way back early in my, you know, security career. So like 2002, 2003, um, uh, I had, you know, read like Hacking Exposed and interviewed uh, George Kurtz and Stuart McClure when I was doing uh, uh, the About.com uh, Internet and Network Security site. And, you know, I, I dabbled a little bit, but I might have gotten way more into uh, playing around with that if I had a safe environment where I could play with it. You know, I, I mean, I know that there's a lot of there are a lot of. I won't name names. There's a lot of people in the cybersecurity industry who, you know, basically, you know, cut their teeth on real world <laughs> environments. And that was just something I, I didn't want to do. And so I didn't, I ended up not really playing with a lot of things because I, I, I was like, well, where, what am I supposed to do? Go, you know, hack, hack, hack some network. Uh, and, and now I know, uh, you know, there, there are more, there are a lot more resources like that, even for like, you know, people who are just getting into security research, there are now, you know, websites and platforms where you can, you know, just go hack, um, which I think is very, is very valuable. Um, and uh, yeah, another... the whole situation is far richer. The tool set is far richer. So that's another thing that I think we need to convey to help developers understand that, you know, in 2000, in the year 1999, if I'd have stuck a credential in my code, which is the way I would have done it. It was an entirely different matter because you had to get into a low-level debugger and you had to hunt for it and you didn't quite have the symbols and and everything you know was much harder. I mean, my very first virus that I had to undo, a worm that I had to undo, I literally had to redo the jump table in hex in an executable to get rid of this thing by hand. The tooling today, this is, you know, like 1993 or something like that. The tooling today is so much richer. 
I, I don't know if if listeners have have looked at Frida, which I adore. Frida is so cool. You know, you can you, you, it'll decompile the, the 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 assembly into mostly readable chunks, understandable chunks. You can stop a memory and run a script to experiment with with the conditions that that point at a memory location or a or a fault and 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 play around you write your own python to go in and and fiddle around with memory and see what happens i mean it's the tooling is so rich today it's trivial to find a credential well maybe not trivial it's not as trivial as finding a cross-site scripting but it's a it's not that hard today as opposed to what we were living with in, say, 1999 or 1998 when I first got into security. Of course, it was all about networks in those days anyway, but right. nevertheless, um, the, 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 the landscape has drastically changed. And then, as you say, there are resources around. There are classes in, in, in hacking and there are um, you know, games where you can improve your skills to capture the flags and whatnot. There are, you know... Um, lots of mentorship programs. There's people who want to mentor other people. It's it's a much richer environment for learning these things than it was before. So today, readers, listeners, if you're uh, if you're putting your credential into your static statically into your code, don't do that. That is a very poor solution today, um, and and is should have long since been been you been obsolete because yeah. your attackers will find it <laughs> yeah so uh, another thing that uh, occurred to me while, while you were talking is that as i was thinking about how some of these things are you know other industries also have you know either safety issues or qa issues and 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 you know f- run into I'm, I'm sure similar things where like you know someone dreams up a product and gets it from like uh, you know, blueprint to production before they go to the QA and, and and safety people and say, hey, you know, what about this? And then and then at that point it's up to them to go, ooh, sorry, you have to go back to the drawing board because you know this is this this won't work. Um, and and I and I liken it to, you know, it's like if if a if a team of engineers at Ford built a car and their only focus was to make a really cool car that could go as fast as possible, but they didn't think of the brakes. You know, because that wasn't their goal. Their goal wasn't to stop the car. Their goal was to make the fastest car. And then you get you get to the end, and all of a sudden there's a, there's a QA guy who goes, "Ooh, sorry, yeah, you're not going to be able to do this." Um, you know, and that you know to to kind of bring it back to that's why you involve the safety people, the security people, the QA people earlier in the process, so you could have those conversations and design it properly the first time, um, which. Brings us back. You you had mentioned earlier. You said you wanted to kind of come back to uh, that early in the process, and like what what can we do to try to get security involved earlier or at the right points? You know, I I've, I've been um, doing this different for years. I talked about the problem, and I talked about organizational things you can do to get and and you know such as that is, it it helps. But I realized that actually on the ground, everybody's still having this problem. And my last couple of programs, we got rid of it or at least reduced it a lot. Um, you never get rid of it entirely because a new team comes up and they have the same old preconceptions and nobody knows about them and they call late or whatever. But uh, so, so probably at this state of the art, we're not going to get rid of this problem. Well, you can reduce it a lot, I know from experience. But how do you do that? And how as an industry, I decided to start challenging both sides of this by bringing up the fact that let's start with the developers. I often ask developers in my classes or at my talks or whatever, so um, how does it feel when you get your security requirements early, when, when, when they're just part of all the requirements? And the developers all, you know, they raise their thumbs thumbs up. That's really great. We know what we want to build, right? That's really great. The, the more we, 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 ha- we know about what we're going to build as we build it, the better. It's not like they're trying to hurt security. We've got to get out of that. This is just one of those dynamics that happens because of misunderstandings and lack of relationships, actually. And so I say, yeah, 
And and how do you and I, I get the security people to listen if they, if I have both in the room and I say pay attention now, and I say okay how does it feel when you get a whole bunch of requirements and the thing's already built, and they're like yuck it's horrible, we hate that. So then I go to the security people and the developers are now paying attention right because I've hooked them emotionally on something that matters to them a lot, right? And I say so you know when you get invited to a project early. And, and you're able to be effective and, and, and deliver the security requirements as it's being built. How's that feel? And all the, dev- all the security people are, yeah, that's what we want. How, how do we get that? And then I say to them, um, and, and when, when a project comes and says, we're going live in two days, bless my project for security. How's that feel? And they're, you know, that's their problem, right? right. Um, and, and then I look at them and say, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it? It actually is pretty simple once you get everybody to realize that they have a shared interest in the early requirements. Once you help developers and security people to look across the chasm of their practice and realize that they have a mutual interest and then say, just change it. Developers, when you start a new effort, you know, you, you may not be security experts. That's okay. You don't need to. Engage your security, you know, whoever's supposed to do security or call security or write that email um, mailbox or whatever it takes to, to get security in. And if there's nothing there, it'll take them five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe 15 at the max to be able to know that and go, yeah, no, you got it. You don't need me. They can figure that out really fast. A good seasoned security architect can figure that out really fast. Nah, you don't need me. You know, you're you're good. Let's let's talk when you when you get further built about the testing. You know, here's the testing I think you might need or whatever. So they can do that pretty fast. Actually, it's not a big deal. Um, and if there are security requirements, there it looks like there's going to be need for security. You've started the engagement, and they're part of the team, even if they have to drop in because they're they're resourced a bunch of a bunch across a bunch of teams or whatever, which is very typical in this thing in this uh, universe. So, you know, they've made the, and I said, developers reach out. And I say to security people, hey, you know who the developers are? Why are you sitting waiting for the phone call? It's going to be late. Reach out and get to know product management. That was the big realization when I was at Cisco and, and we were responsible for the, for all the web properties the security of the web properties, software security of web properties. Um, we got, we hooked product management, and it's an interesting story how that happened. I won't go into it because it'll take too much time. But, but we hooked product management. They began to see our value, and they would call us when they were writing the very first high-level requirements. So engagement was right up front. We were already on the project, and as it unfolded, we were right there to help, um, and and to help craft the work so it would be. It would be as secure as, as we felt it needed to be or we could make it. Um, and those are not the same thing. Um, so, you know, by hooking product management, by hooking project management and reaching out to your project managers and saying, hey, you know, it would be good. We, we need to do a, a initial risk assessment and figure out security. Can you just call me when you start a new project? And making those relationships, we can solve this. It is a relationship and timing thing, and there are different people who are responsible in different organizations for getting things rolling. And if you make relationships with them instead of waiting for the call, then you'll find out. By the time I had been the lead of the web application and infrastructure security team for a few years, my IT counterparts, when they had a new idea, they'd, they'd schedule a half an hour or an hour with me, and we'd go in and whiteboard the whole concept and see what we thought we needed way before anything was started, way before they'd ever even put in a, a you know, a project request and a, and a strategic idea. If they were thinking about changing the way we were doing things, they'd come and get me right early on. Yeah. That's the, what you want. The, and the, the that's a relationship thing. That's not a, that's not a policy. That's not a, um, uh, an SDL line item. It's a relationship. Yeah, and that's what will cure this problem. Yeah, I was gonna say I do the, have a the, trick. The the don't wait for the call uh, part, uh, not not to not to call developers toddlers, but as a parent, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, when when you know your kids are in the next room and then it gets quiet, 
like, well, why is it quiet? Exactly. Um, because, because you know their job is to develop. They're doing something. Right. So if you're not aware of it and you're not and you're not involved in those conversations, then by all means, feel free to pick up the phone and go and go initiate that relationship because, you know, they're developing something. And if you're not in it, then they're developing it without you. And and there's there's another little corollary to this whole thing, which is um, development teams are very good at disinviting people who who create trouble. Or who don't show value. They are very good. You just don't get invited to the next meeting if you go in and, and make everybody feel bad. So that every security person who who does this work must remember that. If we don't treat our development counterparts, if we treat them like toddlers, they're going to disinvite us. They're not going to enjoy working with us. But if we remember that software development is a creative act and that when we innovate in any field, we make lots of mistakes – Instead of being the dumb developer who didn't code securely. No, you make mistakes. You miss stuff. You're in a hurry or you're bored and you make mistakes. All of these things can, can you, know, you don't quite know what you're doing yet. You're still figuring it out or you're bored or you're in a hurry. In all of those situations, you can definitely do an off by one or forget that you're, you know, you're copying a, a uh, signed quantity into an unsigned location or whatever. Right, and all of these are are bugs that'll that'll get you, um, and so uh, you know remembering that and holding that importantly that our our counterparts are intelligent and they're trying to do the best they can, and 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 highly skilled, often, that that helps, but showing value really early, will do a lot. So you go in and you say, well. You know, that's one way to architect this. Of course, that'll engender this kind of security problem, and you have to build this. If you did it this other way, you could – it would be simpler, and you can also use this service that we already have that will take care of that problem for you. You know, which is the better way? And you're, you're working with people. People see that value. They will invite you back. In fact, you will have a line at your desk. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to guarantee you or bet you, but I was just – talking to yet another bunch of security architects on, on this trip I just uh, took to, to deliver this, this, this um, presentation. And, you know, the ones who were really showing value, yeah, I'm, I'm finding that I have this line at my desk and I can't serve everybody. And I'm like, that's good feedback. It means you're delivering value and they're recognizing the value when they want that value. So, um, I should have added to that person, um, and it's time to start training some more people. Right, um, right. But uh, you know, that's that's when you'll get. That's when they'll call you, and you won't have this problem. But I will do want to throw it uh, um, in case there are any security practitioners, security architects listening. Um, I do want to throw a trick out, um, and it'll be in my next book, um, uh, which you know I don't don't expect till next year. But but it's it's almost written, first draft, so it's good. But um, it's a, it's a trick that I developed over the last ooh, six or seven years, and I have never had a team come back late again once they've been through the trick. What I do is just give the consequences of it back to them. Instead of you know stumbling around and saying, oh, I don't know what I can do for you, um, you're late, blah, 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 you know, instead I, I say, okay, that's fine. You got three days before go live. If we do this analysis and I find something major, let's talk to your decision makers and you too participate in this. Let's figure out what you're going to do. Are you going to hold the release in the in the event of something major? I'm not saying there is something major here. I haven't done the analysis. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying what will happen. So I'm giving them the consequences of their late behavior and handing it back to them and saying – you know, you have to deal with this. I can't make it better. You have to figure out what you'll do. Um, and, and you get their director or senior director or vice president or whatever the right level is um, in that organization to also participate and, and say, yeah, no, I, I'm going to hold. If it's major, I'm going to hold the release. Um, unless it's part of the design, then, then maybe not. But, you know, you, you grapple with the problem. They have to grapple with the problem. And I'm just facilitating, right? right. And... Once a team has grappled with that by coming late, I have yet to see a team 
that didn't engage early the next time and for then from then on. Now, that's very personal and very anecdotal. It's not a scientific study. Let's be totally clear here. And it may have as much to do with me as it does with, with the trick. But try that. Just just try, you know, gently and in compassion and, and, and just to make things better. You're not, it's not a punishment. We're just trying to help people understand what, what the situation is. Help people understand that, that they, you know, faced with something major, they're going to have decisions to make. And I swear to you, so far, I haven't had a team come back late again, ever. And word gets around. These things go viral. After a couple of teams go through that process, um, it gets around. And people start wanting to engage early because they don't want to have that happen to them. So that's another little trick you can use if that's of use to folks. Um, it's okay. been good for me. Very good. Um, all right. Well, so this has been a great conversation, lots of great information. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, as we you know, kind of wrap things, I want to give you an opportunity if you have any other you know, final thoughts, a question I didn't ask that you think we really should address. And I would also like for you to let listeners know um you know where where they can find you whether that's you know twitter linkedin your blog or you know or if you don't want to be found that's fine too uh but just want to give you that opportunity so okay well thank you very much um i have all the usual presences and i'll get into that in a moment um the two things we didn't talk about is risk please people don't substitute CVSS, a great tool, by the way, and getting greater by the, by the, by the revision. But uh, don't substitute that for risk. It's not a risk. It's a, it's a potential severity rating. And context matters. And a lot of context isn't there. Um, so you need to think, and it also assumes that, very importantly, both DREAD and CVSS have the problem. They assume that all vulnerabilities are equal, equally valuable to attackers which is vastly not true. Um, only about 10% of what gets um, presented at the, uh, at the big vulnerability conferences actually winds up being used in the wild. And um, there's some research that I just was made aware of and haven't looked at myself that suggests that high, high, high um, CVSS things aren't what actually get used by attackers. Um, you know, the preponderance. So the, the, there's a discorrelation there that's, that's important. Um, and uh, so don't use CVSS for risk. Um, if you want to amend CVSS, because it's a great tool, uh, and, I, and I've used it for years since before version one, um, uh, add a first analysis of attacker value. First, think through exploitation of this it does it add something for an attacker that, that they don't already have. For instance, if it requires high privilege and they can already run code, why would they use a buffer overflow to run code? They wouldn't. No attacker will do that. So a buffer overflow at high privilege isn't useful to an attacker because they can already just download their executable and run it, right? Mm. And so um, it's, it's not useful. There's no attacker value to that. Um, or if there are simpler ways that are already weaponized, they're much more likely to use those than they are this thing unless it gives them something like, you know, the antivirus doesn't catch it right now or whatever, um, some of those problems. So you got to think that through. And very quickly you can say, has no attacker value or very little attacker value, therefore I don't actually need to proceed any further <laughs> with this issue um, until it does have attacker value. And that helps. So don't substitute CVSS for risk. I'll point out that factor analysis of information risk is, in my opinion, the greatest thing that's happened to risk calculations since sliced bread. And it's an open group standard. So go take a look at that. I have some simple ways of using it that are that Jack Jones, who invented FAIR, um, he read the chat that chapter in my last book and said, yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, I changed some things for him. He made it better. Thank you, Jack. Um, but uh, the point is that uh, um, there, are some, uh, there are some better methods that you can look at that may improve your risk scoring, but don't use CVSS and DREAD for risk. They're not meant for that. Um, and uh, we didn't talk about that. 
Um, now, as far as how to how to because that's an important part of this, we have to have a we want to be risk based, right? About this, not just because I feel bad about it, but because we actually think it will cause harm and get leveraged. That's the important thing there. Um, okay, so uh, changing subject. How do you uh, how do you get a hold of me? I'm at b r k schoenfield s c h o e n f i e l d um, on Twitter b r k uh, schoenfield. And uh, all run together, capital B, capital K, I think. Maybe not. I'll have to go look. Um, but uh, you can find me, Brooke Schoenfield. Um, uh, there are pages on uh, Facebook, Brooke Schoenfield, author. You can, you know, join that page. You don't go there very often. Um, so, you know, it's kind of dead. And I also have a page on Amazon as an author. Um, and uh, then there's uh, uh, um, my blog, which is brookshonefield.com. And so, you know, you, you know, come and see if I say anything. I also write for other blogs. I write for the IO Active blog on a regular basis. So, um, you know, you find me there. Um, got a lot of blog material back on the old McAfee because I worked there for a number of years. So, uh, you know, you might want to look at some of that stuff, including this problem with CVSS. Um, and uh, so, you know, those are some places to find me. Um, as far as LinkedIn, if we haven't interacted I, I suspect I'm getting a lot of nation-state troll activity uh, because I get requests for friendship from people I don't know who appear to have wonderful credentials, but I have no idea and I don't have time to check them out. Um, if you're a talent acquisition person, don't please don't misuse my network. It's for me um, and my connections, not for you. Uh, but, you know, if you and I, like Tom, if you, uh, or Tony, sorry, if you and I um, want to connect, that's great. We've been talking. I'm happy to talk with people who've been in my classes. You know, remind me that you saw me at a, at a presentation, and that's great. Um, but uh, just if, you're, if it's a LinkedIn that comes out of the blue, I'm going to ignore you. I'm sorry. Um, because my, my network is actually people I've, I know and have worked with, and it represents that, and I want to keep it that way. If any of you are survivors of old MySpace, you'll understand what I mean. When a thing yeah. becomes just people climbing on each other to see what they can get, it gets really ugly um, fast. And so I'm trying to keep my LinkedIn from that. So please um, don't, don't LinkedIn to me um, unless we've talked, or you can remind me of where we may have met or interacted. Right. How's that? Seems fair. Seems fair. Um, well, again, uh, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time. I, I really think this was a, a good conversation. Uh, hope the listeners get some uh, some value out of it, and uh, and uh, we'll t talk again soon. Well, I thank you very much for having me on. I I hope that some of my twaddling and muling will will be of use to your listeners. Um, I'm I'm on a crusade here. You can see my my tabard with my my crusaders. Uh, outfit here if you just visualize that i'm on a crusade to for secure design because um, i want us to get better all our lives are are incredibly entwined with the digital ones and zeros um you know for the four billion of us who are on the internet at this point um on this planet we're we're incredibly tied to this and if we don't get it right the the consequences are dreadful for individuals for for organizations for you know pick your favorite nation state and so um it's it's important i do believe it's important my little piece of it is secure design excellent all right well thank you very much talk to you later. thank you take care i appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast but i also invite you to engage on social media uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions that you'd like to see answered in future posts. <laughs>